a series of weird tweets got some people to thinking, and a little bit of keyboard sleuthing later, a few said that they thought they had discovered the answer, that the internet had died back in 2016 or 2017, and today was almost being totally run by artificial intelligence. All those people who you think you interact with on social media, they're all fake. For the past six or seven years, humans have not actually had access to the internet as they think of it, but instead to a sort of simulation of the internet, run by advanced artificial intelligences that were created by high-level influencers, companies, and programmers working with governments as part of a mind-control initiative to make us buy more things. The dead internet theory is so new and or obscure that there isn't even a Wikipedia page for it yet. Nonetheless, we'll attempt to unravel this thorny notion and see what might be inside of it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Imitation is the sincerest form of monetization. We've all received those emails or DMs, the ones that start with, Hello, dear, and then the body of the message, as if the person writing it is unaware that both hello and dear are salutations in English and need to be followed by the name of the person being contacted. It's hard to believe even a non-native English speaker doesn't know the basics of writing letters, and so one wonders, is this a bot of some kind? but a bot may be programmed by a non-native English speaker? While tooling around on social media, you may find yourself coming across the same, let's say, eight articles again and again. Often it's something inaccurate or something slightly unusual but trivial, at least in the Facebook circles I frequent. It's very often something about Nikola Tesla. But boy, a lot of people sure seem to be reposting, retweeting, and sharing this one thing with misspellings, punctuation, and grammar errors, and all. And what about the adolescently romantic but also slightly aggressive series of tweets that started showing up in 2019, in 2020, and again in 2021, all variations on the theme of, quote, I hate texting, followed by something corny like, I just want to hold your hand, or I just want to kiss you. Though in recent weeks, there's been a spate of tweets that are a little bit dirtier, like, quote, I hate texting, just come sleep on my boobs, or I hate texting, come play with my coochie. Hmm. These are obviously from women and girls, though men and boys tweet variants like, quote, I hate texting, I just want to sleep on your boobs. 
Anyway, a weird language construction to see replicated so many times by so many people. Is it just people who are desperate for contact yet have no originality pushing out things they've seen elsewhere? That might be true for at least a couple of Twitter accounts like at Capricorn, with the I as a number one, apparently run by a young Latina somewhere whose profile picture is a pink-tinted image of Venus, who likes to post images of the moon that have also been tinted pink and lots of other pink things. She also tweets things like, quote, eye contact with someone you're into is the cutest thing, and quote, I deserve to be kissed for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. But also sad things like, quote, how's life? I don't know, bro. I've been ignoring it. And all I do is listen to music and pretend I don't exist. At Capricorn also has another Twitter account called Pretty Capricorn that's all in Spanish. I just suspect that this is a sad and lonely person. Or maybe it's part of a viral marketing campaign so obscure that no one knows about it. There's the Twitter account of at It's Pure Love, L-U-V, whose name on Twitter is just a tiny little heart, but who actually calls themselves Angel on Earth and who also posts things using this structure. His or her Twitter account has a link to a Linktree website where you can hear their Spotify playlist, click on a link to an empty TikTok account, click on a link to an also empty blog page, and a link to a shop page that has a couple of sweatshirts, baseball hats, and phone cases for sale. So maybe that's the entire point of that. Or maybe it's just bots. We know that there are lots, and I mean lots, of what are called spoofed websites out there on the web. These are empty websites looking very much like the It's Pure Love website that are set up to trick advertisers into thinking a premium ad they paid for has been served on a high domain authority website and a suite of fake social media accounts, fame clicks, even fake cookies and fake mouse movements give the appearance that there has been real traffic to a site, but it's really all being run by pretty sophisticated AI apps that mimic human internet usage. These are often placed on unsuspecting people's computers using malware, which then use the IP address of the infected computer to make it look like that computer is interacting with the website. In fact, it turns out a lot of the activity on the internet is fake like this. Back in 2013, the New York Times found that around half of all YouTube traffic was bots. There was even a worry that the code used to detect fake traffic on YouTube would eventually be fooled by all the fake clicks and likes and watches and eventually it would start tagging bot behavior as authentic and authentic human interaction as fake. This was a process web watchers called the inversion. More recently, far-ranging examinations find that 40% or more of what looks like human and consumer activity on the web is actually bots. And some studies say it's over 60%. And yet, the 2021 bad bot report from the cybersecurity company Imperva says that things are a little less dire than that. They found about 25.6% of website traffic comes from bad bots, another 15.2% comes from good bots, whatever those are, and that leaves 59.2% of website interactions in 2020 as having come from real flesh and blood human beings. Much of the metrics used by websites and social media platforms is also fake or at least skewed in a way that makes their data A, not accurate in the main, and B, useless for practical purposes. Fake subscribers is also a problem with some companies offering people X number of likes or followers for a small fee, like 5,000 YouTube views for $5. These companies then send out bots to quote, watch their clients' videos, which means the bot just hangs out on the video while it plays for 30 seconds, at which point YouTube considers it a watch. 
what are known as click farms started cropping up in China a few years ago, where a handful of staff control hundreds and hundreds of smartphones that, quote, engage with various websites, videos, posts, and so on. The Atlantic magazine even found that Instagram users are posting fake sponsored content in order to give themselves street cred. So it looks like some hot hip brand is sponsoring them, but in fact, it's all a lie. And of course, we all know about deep fakes by now. And yes, a lot of videos out there are deep fakes. This tech was originally developed with the idea of scanning every single image and film frame of, say, Humphrey Bogart, and then using this data and rendering software to create brand new films starring Bogey, even though he's been dead for 65 years, which would be super cool. But as so often happens, as it has become easier to do and better in quality and cheaper, lots of non-film industry folks are using it to create garbage content for entertainment, trolling, or subverting the social fabric of Western society. By the way, all this is true, so it stands to reason that if a lot of what we see internet-wise is fake, maybe the whole damn thing is fake. Maybe the content itself is a lie. Enter the dead internet theory. The dead, dead internet, internet theory. theory. First showing up on the paranormal board of where else 4chan, as well as on Wizard Chan, and then gaining more traction thanks to a person with the handle Illuminati Pirate on the Vaporwave Forum, which is part of the awesome website called Agora Roads Macintosh Cafe. The notion is this. Sometime around 2016 or 2017, AI essentially took over the internet. 99 plus percent of all interaction with humans over the web and the content created there is in fact AI. Almost no real people use the internet anymore. It is, as one person put it, a sterile wasteland devoid of humans. After all, how could actual human beings with rents and mortgages and car payments spend their time participating in the wheels versus doors debate that's currently sweeping the internet? This kicked off on March 5th this year when a guy in New York, supposedly, named Ryan Nixon tweeted that he and his friends were debating the following question. Do you think there are more doors or wheels in the world? Followed by a poll. Wheels won with 53.6% of the vote and people all over started choosing one side or another displaying hashtag team doors or hashtag team wheels. TikTok debate videos started cropping up earning literally hundreds of millions of views. James Corden has come down in the Team Doors camp, while the delivery company UPS has chosen Team Wheels. But they would, wouldn't they? Members of the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team are split on the subject. A debate emerged on The Tonight Show between guest Noah Schnapp of Stranger Things, host Jimmy Fallon, and Roots band leader Tariq Trotter, and on and on it goes. Surely this is some next-level AI trolling of humanity, right? Only a machine could come up with this, and one assumes the machines would probably be hashtag Team Wheels. But wait, I use the internet, you may be thinking. Yeah? What do you do there? Mainly, you like a few social media posts and videos. Maybe you make a comment or two. Every once in a great while, you might post something yourself. But really, the primary thing that you do online is look at ads. Ads everywhere in banners, before videos, during videos, in the sidebars. When you search for holiday resorts in Alicante, Spain one day, suddenly vacation packages for Alicante, Spain start showing up everywhere on every website that you visit on the web. And sometimes this happens if you just talk about taking such a holiday in the vicinity of your smartphone or smart speaker. 
A guy named Duncan, who looks at philosophy, psychology, and memes, has made a pretty decent video on YouTube in which he suggests that some of the popularity of the dead internet theory, if you want to call it a theory, comes from a longing nostalgia for the old days of the web when things were, yes, low res, but quirky and innocent and way less standardized and commoditized than today. Back in the 90s, the web was much more suited to actually building community with people physically distant, as opposed to today when it kind of sometimes seems like just people shouting at one another and trying to sell you things, whether those things are products, services, or ideas. Even early YouTube was fun before people started using it to make money. One person on Agora Road pointed out that actually the early web sucked. Yeah, sure, it was amusing sometimes, but those load times were ridiculous. The graphics and quality and everything, it really was just sad. Sure, there were fewer ads trying to sell you the latest smart backpack or amusing socks, but there were also way fewer interesting things out there to go and see and interact with. There's another nostalgia angle here as well, the solipsism we almost all experience as teenagers. That is to say, who didn't at some point in their younger days seriously ponder the idea that maybe they were the only real person in the world? Or at the very least, the only thing that we know for sure is what we experience firsthand and everything else really is kind of a matter of faith to some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that seems to support the dead internet theory, some say. Though the main argument seems to be that it feels like it might be true. No one can deny the online experience has changed quite a bit from even the early noughties. Most of the survivors have been bought up, melded together, and we are seeing the blending of separate types of apps, social media with messaging, telephoning, and so on, and into a single seamless whole. This, in fact, is the mission of Meta, the newly renamed parent company that grew out of Facebook. Zuckerberg's stated goal is to create an immersive VR world where you can do anything and everything in what will hopefully one day be photorealistic digital immersive simulation. This is really the actualization of Neil Stevenson's idea of the metaverse, which he introduced in his seminal 1992 novel Snow Crash. Hell, Zuckerberg is using the same name. And this is coming, like it or not. And yes, more and more companies will start using it if it doesn't suck like Google Plus did, and it'll get harder and harder to conduct business or do much of anything of value on the internet without using the metaverse someday. For some people, this sounds awesome. For others, it sounds weird and creepy. And sadly, early experiments with the VR metaverse have brought out the creeps and the jerkwads. MIT Technology Review published an article in December last year titled, The Metaverse Has a Groping Problem Already. They talk about a late November beta test for the metaverse in which avatars can hang out together in a virtual space called Horizon Worlds, with each virtual space fitting about 20 at a time. But one woman participating found her avatar kept getting groped by others. Meta's finding was that the user should have been using the Safe Zone Protocol, which creates a sort of a bubble shield around your avatar. When it's activated, no one can touch your avatar, but they also can't talk to you or otherwise interact with you. So this poor woman had two choices. Either let people digitally fondle her virtual avatar and yet participate in the communal VR space, or close herself off to all interactions, in which case, what would be the point of being there at all? This sort of thing has been going on for ages in the game gaming world. Now, some say, hey, what's the big deal? It's not like you're actually being touched. 
Others say via harassment is still harassment and maybe should carry the same penalties as this kind of behavior does in the real world, which admittedly is hard to enforce, but still there are procedures in place out here in meat space. Some female commentators also make the point, which honestly they've been trying to make for years, that sexual harassment doesn't have to be physical. Verbal comments or even just following someone or staring at them is quite yucky all on its own. So people suck, or rather some people suck, or rather some people do sucky things sometimes. Not to downplay what is clearly a serious problem that will have to be addressed before this tech can be rolled out worldwide. If all we focus on is the negative interactions online, then yes, it can start to feel like maybe there's no there there. It's the all and powerful Oz with some weirdo behind the curtain. It's a Potemkin village run by a childish adolescent. I myself have been disheartened when looking into this conspiracy or that one. The shrill rhetoric, the truly abysmal spelling and capitalization, so whole posts read like encrypted messages transmitted during wartime, the spread of greengrocers, apostrophes like cancerous tumors, the dumbfounding lack of logic or the ability or willingness to see logic, well, it can all get to be a bit much. However, I also come across wonderful, funny, and even very creative things out there on the web. The fact is that whatever the thinker thinks, the prover proves. This is how the human mind works. So if you think that the internet is a vapid, empty space with no originality and nothing really of value, then when you interact with it, of course it feels dead and soulless because you've created this model in your mind and then your mind tries to prove that that's true. So let's take the dead internet theory at face value and see what the landscape looks like through, well, not rose-colored glasses, but ones tinted by, let's say, Pantone 448C, a drab dark brown that is informally recognized as the ugliest color in the world, chosen for cigarette packaging in Australia back in 2012 in an effort to make those little nicotine sticks less appealing to customers. Something, Something rotten, rotten in the in state, state of Denmark. Denmark. As mentioned, it all started on 4chan and Wizard Chan anonymously, but then was taken up by a guy with the handle Illuminati Pirate on the Agora Road forum with a long post titled, We're Living in the 1990s. Illuminati Pirate says right up front, this is all based on a series of hunches and speculations, and so obviously that's going to necessarily color the proofs he finds. The internet, says he, quote, feels empty and devoid of people. It is also devoid of content. It sure seems like the internet has become massive with an estimated 1.9 billion websites as of this recording and an astonishing 125 new websites being added every 10 seconds according to Internet Live stats, which means just a couple of weeks after this episode goes live, there will be more than 2 billion websites out there. Interestingly, this pace is only a little bit slower than the actual global birth rate. Coincidence? Maybe. But there are a few indicators for Illuminati Pirate and others that all this web content is fake. Here are some proofs. All the people he used to interact with back in the early days of the web seem to have totally disappeared. Not moved over to Facebook or whatever, just poof, gone. He admits he's what's known as an old fag, a person who was active in the very early days of the internet, like even before the advent of graphical user interfaces and just won't shut up about it. So he's been here online pretty much through the entire evolution of the net and the web, and where the heck did all those people go? Content keeps repeating. 
Threads from one year will show up somewhere else on the web the next year with the exact same replies, comments, gifts, images, and so on. Sometimes the same content gets repeated but presented as if it's something new or shocking or amazing. Hey, did you know that sometimes the moon looks really big and also orange? It's true! It's called a harvest moon. Wow, huh? And then four years later, as another Gen Zer learns about it for the first time, pretty much the exact same post goes up and spreads again. Old memes that seemed like they would be eternal back in the days of image boards like 4chan, for example, Rapture Jesus, have either disappeared or morphed through time into more innocuous variants. Rapture Jesus became Foul Bachelor Frog, who became Pepe the Frog. This seems to be a standardizing and dumbing down of original ideas. Fiction, written, filmed, and online is becoming more standardized, seeming to follow the same templates, catering to the lowest common denominator. Illuminati Pirate calls this algorithm fiction. After all, how many superhero stories do we really need? Does every single TV series now have to start in the action and then flash back? Surely you've noticed that in, say, an eight-episode season, there will be a big twist at the end of episode four to keep you hooked. Deepfakes and even CGI are way more advanced than we've been led to believe, and almost everyone who is creating and posting videos on YouTube, TikTok, and the like is in fact not a real person. This would explain why the content is so mind-numbingly similar. The internet of your computer and the internet on your phone are different. Spend a day checking out a website that you frequent, and you'll see certain content appears on one device but then seems to be totally absent when you look at it on the other device. Some events we learn about via the web are fake in themselves, while other events are using algorithm fiction, especially plots and even images from video games, as templates. Art imitates life, then that life imitates art, and so on, until essentially there is no difference between the two. This is all clearly the work of super-sophisticated AIs that have one job, to keep us looking at our screens so we can be fed ads so we will buy more stuff. Illuminati Pirate traces a series of fairly recent events that form in his mind a timeline that leads to this inevitable conclusion. Back in 2003, the Information Processing Techniques Office of DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, part of the United States Department of Defense, submitted funding request paperwork for what they called, quote, an ontology-based subsystem that captures, stores, and makes accessible the flow of one person's experience in and interactions with the world in order to support a broad spectrum of associates slash assistants and other system capabilities. Called LifeLog, it would track everything a person did and every relationship or association they made. It would use credit card data, online activity, emails, telephone calls and texts, scans of physical mail sent and received, printed materials read, books, magazines, newspapers, pamphlets, cereal boxes, everything, films and videos watched, GPS data to track all your movements, wearable sensors to record biomedical data, and much, much more. The purpose was to try and discern people's, quote, preferences, plans, goals, and other markers of intentionality. LifeLog would then be able to predict what people might do in the future or in given circumstances. This could scale up to cohorts, groups, clubs, organizations, companies, and maybe even larger conglomerations of humans, cities, counties, states, and even countries. 
People would willingly participate in this data by wearing certain devices that allowed tracking and measurement. Armed with this data, LifeLog's users could A, be much more effective at marketing and messaging, B, crimes and terrorist attacks and the likes could be prevented before they were going to occur, they could reduce strain on medical facilities by diagnosing health conditions early on, and so on, why the applications were nearly endless. If only you could get people to agree to basically totally eliminate their privacy. By the way, this is not a science fiction story. This is totally 100% true. And yes, it sounds a little bit like some of Philip K. Dick's writings, especially the idea of pre-crime from Minority Report mixed with Dave Eggers' novels The Circle and The Every, and that incredible episode from the first season of Black Mirror, 15 Million Merits. If you haven't seen it, watch it. A small amount of initial funding for LifeLog was granted, but then on February 3rd, 2004, the project was canceled as being, well, too invasive and creepy. Illuminati Pirate notes that later that same month, Facebook was founded. <clears throat> and then DARPA's Information Awareness Office, yes, that's a real thing, formed in 2002 in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, had their Total Information Awareness Program. This was basically predictive policing trying to anticipate and stop terrorism events before they happened. Admiral John Poindexter called it a Manhattan Project for Counterterrorism, and its core software architecture, codenamed Basketball, continued to be improved. Sometime around 2012, it moved over to the NSA, an organization formed in 1952, but which used to be so secret that people in the intelligence community joked that the initials stood for no such agency. Also in 2012, the Smith-Mundt Modernization Act passed in the U.S., allowing the State Department and the Broadcasting Board of Governors to have oversight over materials about the United States to be disseminated abroad, as well as have a say in any materials for domestic consumption. Some reporters said that this effectively overturned a 64-year ban since 1948 on disseminating propaganda within the United States. In the act, propaganda is defined as, quote, public diplomacy information. There had been some attempts to circumvent that ban before. While President JFK initiated the short-lived Project Mockingbird, which allowed government agencies to wiretap and eavesdrop on journalists. Information about this came to light when the documents finally got declassified in 2007. There was also the unrelated Operation Mockingbird, which was a long-term government-level domestic surveillance operation directed against various potential, quote, enemies of the state, a tool Richard Nixon used quite a bit, as the Watergate Committee discovered. QAnon people today have taken the term Operation Mockingbird and now use it to describe what they see as the fake news false narrative being pushed by the American media to cover up the existence of the satanic pedophile alien, alien, demon, demon rain, rain, whatever. Between 2012 and 2016, many internet companies like Google, Amazon, and Facebook were given contracts to use this DARPA and NSA software to refine their algorithms. In 2016, Google created a video for a project called Selfish Ledger to basically do much of what LifeLog wanted to do using Lacmarian user data, but all maintained and stored by Google to be used as they saw fit. The video says that maybe this ledger of our online and some real-world activity could be goal-oriented rather than just a record of past deeds, and that Google itself could use this data to encourage people to do things that are beneficial to society rather than harmful. 
Again, this is totally the plot of Dave Eggers' recent novel, The Every. While documents and an internal video about this selfish ledger project were leaked in 2018, Google said this was a hypothetical scenario, an example from the Google X design team of what they call speculative design to create concepts that spark debate and discussion. This was never an actual real project. Or, or Illuminati Pirate notes that in 2016, in November, Google introduced an artificial neural network that uses NMT or neural machine translation that learns from millions of examples in order to supposedly improve Google Translate. Deep fakes, a word that combines deep learning and fake, though started back in 1997 with the video rewrite program, really took off in 2016 with the face Two face program. The two is the number two. And then somehow members of the public got their hands on that code and started making, well, porn at first, and then revenge porn videos, and then satirical pieces, and eventually anything they wanted. This, says Illuminati Pirate and others who believe the dead internet theory, is when the internet basically died. When people were booted off and replaced with digital simulacra that mimic humans. Using the aforementioned tech as well as data storytelling products like Lexio and Quill, developed by the private sector company Narrative Science in Chicago, and the nonprofit VC firm InQTEL, whose brief is to keep U.S. intelligence agencies, especially the CIA, equipped with the most cutting edge and up to date information tech available, with the result that almost none of what is on the web today is actually generated by human beings. One person noted that Google search results are just so preposterous in scale they can't be believed. I mean, how can there be 4.23 billion results to the search term climate change in a mere 0.71 seconds? All right, maybe enough people are writing about climate change to justify that huge number, but 12 million results for robot dance challenge? Or 31.4 million results for pizza hot dog cheese bedspread? A search string I just made up and checked? As always with things that make their way into the conspiracy, it's hard to tell who is kidding around, who is simply spreading these ideas to make people worry, and who is suffering mental health issues when they encounter the dead internet theory. Caveat emptor. The core argument for the DIT, dead internet theory, is that 99% of the content of today's web is repetitive, vacuous, or just plain stupid. That seems a little bit elitist to me, in a backwards kind of way. It's as if Illuminati Pirate and other ditters are saying, there's no way that that many people can be so stupid, so therefore it must be something else. I beg to differ. I think that, yes, it is totally plausible that there are that many stupid people in the world. Or rather, it's not that there's such a large percentage of the population that's dumb, it's just that there are a lot of people on Earth, like, a lot. This is a problem of comprehending scale. Yes, yes, we all know the number around 8 billion people in the world, but that number is just meaningless to us. We've never seen 1 billion anythings in one place, let alone 8. So let's just say for the sake of argument that 5% of the human race is actually totally no-nonsense stupid. Not not a genius, not average, but actually stupid. 5% of the U.S. population alone is 16.7 million stupid people, and globally, 396.7 million stupid people. So let's just call it 400 million. 
Okay, not everybody has access to the internet. Well, an estimated 4.66 billion people do, so that still leaves 233 million idiots out there with access to the internet. That is a big boatload of dum-dums. Add to that number people who aren't morons per se, but not super sharp, or who are distracted, or tired, or young, or old, or inexperienced, or naive, or trolls, or self-proclaimed jokesters, and suddenly the number of people who are sharing an amazing three exclamation points image of a unicorn glitter moon or whatever becomes so ridiculously high that frankly I'm surprised we don't see more of these posts. In pre-web times, how many of these kinds of people would you encounter in, say, a year? Three? Ten? But with the web, you can counter hundreds of them in a single month. So your brain, which tends to do a mathematics of one, two, uh, many, makes a leap and assumes that there are way more people like that out there because human beings are just not good at estimating large numbers. It seems far more likely that some people put up dumb stuff and there are just way more people in the world than you can get your head around than that Google and DARPA and the NSA populated the web with next-level AIs in order to trick us into giving up our data so they can track our every move and buy things. Also, ask yourself this, is it working? Are you just sitting around, looking at your screens all the time, consuming content and buying the very things advertised to you through those screens? I mean, I can only really speak for myself, but I'm not. I mean, okay, sometimes, but not all the time. I read a lot, yes, on a Kindle, which is electronic, but I don't see ads there. I consumed film content like it's popcorn, but again, it's all streamed and ad-free. When I feel like my vaccines are enough to protect me against COVID, I go out for beers or a meal, no screens, no ads. In fact, the most exposure to online advertising that I have in my life is when I tool around on the various websites doing research for this podcast and a bit of social media. But even there, I actually know most of the people I interact with, and when we physically meet up, we sometimes talk about posts and comments they or I have made, and so I know that those things were put out there on the web by real flesh and blood people. And I'd be willing to bet that this is very much the same for most of you listening. If it isn't, it might be time for a lifestyle change. As for people, websites, and other content disappearing from the web, this really shouldn't be surprising. There's a thing called link rot. Over time, hyperlinks break. The thing they link to gets moved or becomes permanently unavailable because the website went away or the hosting service went under or whatever. A few studies in the 20-teens suggested that the average half-life of a link could be around 140 weeks or about 2.7 years. Half-life, keep in mind. Others give a half-life of 14 years. So, of course, it really depends on how big a sample you look at and over what time scale. In 2021, a study looking at just New York Times links from 1996 to 2019 found a full quarter of them were broken. Websites like the Internet Archive and its Wayback Machine, these attempt to preserve digital online content for future reference. But it's inevitable that even in the online world, things decay and fall away. Impermanence is the only permanent feature of our universe, as the Buddhists keep trying to tell us. I'd also argue that while, yes, there's a lot of garbage on the web, there's a lot of awesomeness, too. 
Sure, plenty of formulaic streaming and network shows. I don't know if I can sit through another Dead Girl in the Forest, Nordic Noir style detective program. But there are also bizarre and wholly original works like Legion, Counterpart, Severance, Secession, and the truly odd Raised by Wolves. There are podcasts, many of which again are sort of cookie cutter versions of one another, but there are also some fantastic ones out there. <clears throat> you know? And would a machine have come up with something so out in the cornfield wrong as the Yvette's Bridal Formal website, largely considered to be the worst website in the world? No way. Only a human could have created that. By the way, if you haven't seen it, you should see it. There's a link to an archive version in the episode notes. And make sure to enable the sound so you can get the bagpipe soundtrack. Is it really so surprising that so much content today seems hastily copy and pasted from other sources, often with the exact same spelling and punctuation errors? In his excellent 2008 book, Flat Earth News, Nick Davies, award-winning investigative journalist for The Guardian and The Observer, outlines quite clearly how even the news media, especially media outlets that rose to fame in print, are we're scrambling to get content, content, content out there on the web with speed being prioritized over everything else, including, sadly, fact and spell checking. Add to that that people don't check sources, trolls and backed actors purposely trying to undermine our trust in things, and people with truly offbeat senses of humor, and you'll have the public digital landscape we see today. No nefarious AIs are required, just people being people. No 9,000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. So said Hal 9000 just before he made an error. The dead internet theory has a commonality with many conspiracy theories. On the one hand, there's a far-reaching, diabolical, hyper-intelligent overarching scheme using sophisticated tools, techniques, and technologies. And on the other hand, there's totally dumb stuff. So deepfakes and AIs are so sophisticated that they can fool us all, and yet what they create is this stupid, empty, idiotic content. Just how good is AI today? One problem is that the term AI has been co-opted, as have so many other terms. AI means machines that mimic human cognitive functions, especially to solve problems and to learn and even make decisions. Today, we probably should differentiate between what's commonly referred to as AI and what's known as true AI or strong AI. In this first category, Google uses AI for search results, as do recommendation systems used by the likes of Amazon and Netflix. They use systems similar to what's known as the easy problem of consciousness. How the brain uses signals, makes plans, and even sometimes guides human behavior. True AI would be an actual thinking machine, essentially conscious and self-aware, sentient. This is the hard problem of consciousness, understanding the subjective experience of being alive and conscious. In the words of philosopher John Cyril, this would be the difference between simulating a mind and actually having a mind. But if the simulation is a truly excellent one, how would we know which one we're dealing with? There's the Turing test. The first version of this was a variant on something called the imitation game and went like this. Three individuals, one a man, A, one a woman, B, and one of either sex, C, who is also the interrogator. C cannot see A and B, and the only communication is through writing. The goal was for C to figure out which one was a woman and which one was a man. Now, substitute A or B with a computer. 
can see determine which is the human and which is the machine. Any computer who can fool the interrogator into thinking it's the human would have passed the test. A later version of this test had both A and B actively trying to fool C. Still later, questions arose as to what would happen if the interrogator C did not know that one was a machine and thought they were testing for something else. Could a machine trick them? So, has any machine passed the test? Back in 2014, the BBC reported that a program that simulates a 13-year-old Ukrainian boy named Eugene Gustman passed the Turing test at the University of Reading. The version of the test they were using is one in which the computer wins if it is mistaken for a human more than 30% of the time during a five-minute keyboard and screen conversation. Royal Society members evaluating Eugene Gustman thought it was human 33% of the time, which passed the threshold. But others said, no way, that's way too low. And Eugene Gustman doesn't count. An article on Big Think as recently as March 7th of this year says that still no machines have properly passed the Turing test as yet. It has been said that self-driving cars will be the true catalyst for strong AI. If you can actually get machines to make all the observations, contextualizations, and decisions that human drivers make consistently, then you will have achieved strong AI. Well, that doesn't seem so hard, you think? After all, you just need to have a crash record better than humanity's. The current state of autonomous vehicles is a complex system that, yes, uses AI, but also uses cameras, sensors, radar, and the web itself to create a network of vehicular autonomy. And it is coming. I was just recently at the World Expo in Dubai, and I'd say probably a quarter of the country pavilions there said that some serious, no-nonsense, self-driving vehicles would become a large part of, and in some cases the majority, of all vehicular traffic in their nation by the year 2030. And some even had target years earlier than that. Well, say the more science-fictionally-minded conspiracy people, maybe they've hooked up real people to computers and have basically enslaved them, co-opting their minds in a kind of computer-organic AI web. Well, there are some brain-computer interface success stories. Elon Musk's Neuralink wants to create brain-machine interfaces by implanting teeny-tiny wires in human brains. And there was a demo not long ago that while seems like it was partly staged, was also a little bit of a success. But it's still like like super early days success, not like this is getting rolled out next year. More recently, Brown University researchers, unable to access study participants directly because of COVID lockdown restrictions, had actually great success in setting up non-invasive wireless brain-computer interfaces for people with restricted movement due to spinal injuries. But no one is doing especially complicated things using this technology as of yet. Yeah, well, that's the cover story. That's what they want you to believe. But really, they have perfected this technology. Or maybe they salvaged it from crashed or captured alien spacecraft. Or they signed a contract in their own blood with baby-eating demon aliens for the tech or whatever. One, one, one singular, singular sensation, sensation. Every, every little, little step, step she step takes. takes. Yes, that's from Chorus Line. Some futurists and pretty much all transhumanists believe in something called the technological singularity, often just reduced to the word singularity, capital S. This is a hypothetical future point in time when the growth of technology achieves such a pace that it will alter human civilization forever. 
One commonly held aspect of this will be the augmentation of humans with tech in such a way as to cause a runaway explosion in intelligence, with each generation substantially smarter than the previous one. And in a short span of time, humans will evolve so rapidly as to be, from our early 21st century perspective, something essentially completely different. Maybe we all merge into one single superintelligence. Maybe we merge with machines to become a new species comprised of both. Maybe machine intelligence plus digital connections plus biotech creates the society known as the culture in the novels by science fiction writer Ian M. Banks, one where biology can be altered on a whim, including actual sex, not just gender, and something very close to strong AI companions who act as educators, caretakers, flunkies, and maybe even sometimes friends proliferate the society. Immortality of some kind or another could become part of this. This might be physical immortality, which could be that life extension tech keeps pushing the average out edge of life expectancy with new innovations all the time so that effectively we become immortal. Or maybe we'll have digital downloading and storage of a human's mind into a virtual environment, which is perceptually indistinguishable from objective reality, and where we could live until a new customized body with our own personal specifications is grown slash constructed, or maybe this virtual world could become a permanent place of inhabitation where we could live millennia at a stretch subjectively. No matter the specifics, we would effectively become, from our perspective today, gods. And yeah, I would totally want to live in that society. Well, maybe. Futurist Ray Kurzweil, one of the idea's main proponents, says he thinks it'll happen around the year 2045. Others say the 2050s or 2060s, and a quite large number of experts say it won't happen until the 22nd century or later, if it happens at all. So, maybe the future's so bright we gotta wear cyberpunk mirror shades, or maybe this hopeful techno-faith, which is what it sometimes comes across as, is hopelessly simplistic, and what the future holds will actually be the outcome of a great many factors that are not being taken into consideration, like Will the surface of the Earth even be inhabitable 100 years from now? Then again, if it isn't, and the singularity comes, does it really matter for us humans? If this techno-utopia comes to pass, will it be accessible to everyone, or will the 1% hoard it like they do so many other resources? Discuss. So, maybe the internet really is dead, devoid of actual humans, populated by secretly advanced AIs that are, even now, tricking us into essentially enslaving ourselves, proles forever bound to a wheel of never-ending consumption and toil while pushing the date of the singularity ever closer. Or maybe it has already happened, and we all live right now in a simulation. Perhaps a benign one, or perhaps one that resembles the Matrix films where we're just batteries or something in between. But that is a topic for next time, which will be the two-year anniversary episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Thank you for listening. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>